Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Boom. Welcome. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And we're grad students at Stanford. And if you haven't been listening to Boom and don't know that by now, I don't know what you're doing because it's March 2020. (laughs) It's March 2020 and we have a great episode for you today. I hope you're ready for this. Yeah. Today we had a great talk with Carol Scheffler, who is a professor of biology at Seattle Pacific University. And she has some super interesting work around sexual dimorphism, which is basically that fancy word just means two sexes of the same species exhibit different characteristics beyond just the differences in their sexual organs. So, for instance, she talks about how men and women differ with regards to their metabolic cost and walking speed relationship. Yeah, her research is super fascinating, especially because she comes from this background of anthropology and Mm -hmm. then applying it to biomechanics, which was super cool. And really, this episode will just make you want to yell, Yas Queens! queens! (laughs) Because we just learn about, you know, the just the differences between men and women, but Mm -hmm. how those help us be also like empathetic. And, Mm -hmm. And so it was like so interesting to hear like beyond just like how it benefits us in terms of biomechanics, but also, Mm -hmm. like, support others emotionally. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and support different behaviors. Exactly. She also talks about the importance of understanding a variety of perspectives in science and especially teaching. And she said, in order to learn, you have to feel that the professor cares about you, um, which we loved. I actually just went to um, a thesis defense who his project was on understanding what it means for students to feel cared about by their professors, which was cool. And it was like a combination of on this two axis plot of like one is feeling like teachers have high expectations for them. Mm -hmm. And then the other axis is teachers feeling and knowing that the student has an identity outside of the classroom. And so those were the two main pillars that he talked about. Yeah, Yeah, like seeing you as more than just like someone who works for exactly, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, I feel like Kara exemplified that really well. And she she also actually talks about a group, uh, faith and science group on campus that she's part of. So that's also a really cool part of the interview. Yeah, that was fun because we haven't talked about that yet on the podcast. But all right, well, let's start off with a bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. So the bit of boom for today is from an article on OutsideOnline.com, and it's called The Longer the Race, the Stronger We Get, with a subtitle, At the Outer Edges of Endurance Sports, Something Interesting is Happening, Women are Beating Men. So let's, (laughs) let's dive into that. Yeah, and Kara actually talks a little bit about this in her interview as well, as you'll hear. But And she pointed us to these sources as well, so right. it was exciting to have her uh, inform our bit of boom today. But basically, this article talks about how women, we weren't really even able to see the potential women had in endurance sports or different sports because 
women weren't allowed to compete. I found that insane when I saw there's a fact in here that says that we weren't the women we we we, we, (laughs) women weren't allowed in the Boston Marathon until 1971, which was 74 years after the event started. Which, (laughs) for some reason, I just yeah I just didn't know that, and it was kind of a surprising and upsetting fact. (laughs) (laughs) It is really upsetting because I like, and I kind of think that's a testament to how we've been. Not that, like, you know, everyone respects women as much as they should in our day Mm -hmm. and age, right? There's still imperfections. But I feel like it is a little bit of a testament to how good of an environment we've grown up in, in that, like, that's astounding to us. Yeah, like, it's kind of inconceivable that that would ever be possible. Right. Yeah. But it definitely was, and there's, you know, women now that went through this, so, yeah. Right, and we didn't even understand some of the scientific aspects of women athletes because it wasn't until 1993 that Bill Clinton actually signed the National Institutes of Health Revitalization Act, which required most federally funded research to include them. So women actually were excluded from the majority of studies of exercise and biomedicine, which leads to what Kara was talking about in our lack of understanding of some of the metabolic costs. um, Yeah, exactly. Because I think the what scientists had thought historically is that men have these physical advantages over women mm-hmm. and at the elite level like there's just been a focus on men but now we're finally starting to understand what women and especially women in endurance mm-hmm. events are capable of yeah and getting a little bit down to the biomechanics of that there are differences in muscle properties between the sexes with women having greater uh, numbers of fatigue resistant fibers so they're, these are the fibers, right, that we know are utilized in sort of activities that require lower forces, but maybe over a longer time duration. Yeah, exactly. Another factor that they're learning about is blood flow. And so men have larger muscles and they tend to demand, I mean, they demand more blood with a larger volume. So their hearts have to work harder. And mm-hmm. with women, on average, like having smaller muscles, this seems to be an advantage in terms of not needing as as much blood being yeah yeah that it totally makes sense so really we're just we're really good at endurance sports they cite you know this article cites several other factors that they think give women an edge including being able to derive more of their energy from fat compared to males as well as potentially coming out ahead in the game of race pacing so there's a little bit of a mm-hmm. more mental advantage there that mm. They've shown that women are actually better at race pacing than men. Yeah, so they don't. Men, I guess, tend to start off faster yeah. and then kind of s- slow off a little bit later in the race. And there's a quote in this article <laughs> by Rebecca Roosh, who is 43 and a seven-time world champion mountain biker, <laughs> and she's competed in against men in endurance events for 25 years. So she's had a lot of experience in this. And she said she's seen this play out a lot of times in endurance biking courses. And her quote is that all these guys will go out hot and hours later I catch them. They always ask, why do you want to, why do you start so slowly? And I answer, why do you finish so slowly? <laughs> yeah, like, queen. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> she has said it. <laughs> but it's just funny because we think about physical um, advantages, disadvantages, but there's also perhaps some mental aspect that plays into these as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's cool that we're starting to understand and, and learn more about these differences and 
you know, how we can perform our best, I guess, in, in mm-hmm. different events. Yeah, like maybe we're finally getting to sports and also excitement around sports that yeah. better highlight some of these strengths. And yeah. I also feel like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be like lifting those heavy weights and my yeah. muscles are going to get too big and then... <laughs> Then you're just gonna and be like a man. I'm not be, <laughs> <laughs> then I'm not gonna be able to run as fast. <laughs> well, I'm excited to jump into the interview. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this great bit of boom. Go women. <laughs> we love everyone. <laughs> we love everyone equally. <laughs> and here is our interview with Kara Walshepler. All right. We are here talking with Kara Walsh-Scheffler, who is the professor of biology at Seattle Pacific University. Thanks for talking with us, Kara. So your research focuses on the evolution of human sexual dimorphism, uh, particularly in the context of balancing the pressures of thermoregulation and long-distance locomotion, which we're excited to talk about. Um, and we are also really lucky to hear you talk at the International Society of Biomechanics and American Society of Biomechanics meeting in Calgary last summer. And we're really particularly excited by your enthusiasm enthusiasm for your research and some of the surprising things we learned about differences in metabolic costs between men and women, which we hope to talk about later on. Yeah, your energy was just absolutely amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We were like, we have to have it on Boom. (laughs) Thank you. Well, it helps when you love what you do. Well, that definitely That's good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good to hear, yeah. and definitely comes across. So, our favorite way, really, to start these interviews is actually with the question, or sort of maybe you could detail your path to biomechanics and biology and to where you are right now. Yeah, sure. I can start really far back or kind of far back, whatever you would like. I, <laughs> we do. We um, always love to hear we like, love the, the, like yeah, first story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, for better or for worse, I come from a long line of academics. And so I, I knew my dad actually has a little note that I wrote to him in kindergarten when we had our kindergarten class had visited, you know, visiting your parents at work day. And I had visited his work and I wrote him a little thank you note afterwards that said, dear dad, I want to be a teacher just like you when I grow up. And uh, so I knew really early on that I wanted to work at a university, that I wanted to be an academic and do research. And it was probably in high school that I knew that would that was going to be biology. I just wanted to understand how the world works. Mm-hmm. And and I think probably everybody says that and I just knew that biology was the way to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I uh, I did my undergrad in biology, but pretty early on knew that in order to understand how the world works today, then the questions really were going to be, how did what we see in the world today function in the past? And what really was the evolutionary history of, you know, my interest always being humans? What was, how did the evolutionary history of humans contribute to how humans are today? And I was extremely interested in the interplay uh, between biology and culture mm-hmm. and how 
humans buffer themselves from some of the evolutionary pressures that other creatures might face because of the because of their their ways of using um, material and social and other cultural aspects mm-hmm. to um, prevent biology from always from I guess from the same evolutionary pressure always having the same effect because that just isn't the case with humans. Yeah, different different pressures have different effects depending on our culture. And that was extremely interesting and exciting to me. So I went to graduate school in biological anthropology, which is essentially the study of humans as cultural creatures. Mm. Uh, in my first term in graduate school, I saw a picture of a Neanderthal skeleton from Israel. The specimen is called Kabara II. And it's one of our best sets of locomotor morphology that exists in the fossil record where we have lumbopelvic remains with femurs. And I just looked at that, I just looked at that shape. I looked at the pelvis and I just I said that is so different from our morphology. I wonder what Neanderthal locomotion was like. And I wonder if it mattered in their evolution, in the way in which they went extinct and how they used their environment. I just got really excited by what locomotion could tell us about, I guess, about niche. And so I started studying what we would call mobility patterns, mobility strategies in biological anthropology and okay. evolutionary anthropology, just how do creatures move across the landscape, essentially, and how can we track that using archaeology, paleontology, and then, of course, reconstructing using biomechanics on, wow. on creatures living today. And so in order to do that, you have to measure a lot of people because... <laughs> In order to make any claims about creatures that lived in the past, you have to find that their range of variation in at least some of the some of the aspects of locomotion that you're interested in matches like falls within the range of variation of the data that you've actually collected. And so in order to find a large enough range of variation in order to say something about Neanderthal locomotion, I really had to measure a, a lot of people who looked different from each other so I could get this big range of, of possibilities of, of what does it mean to have limb lengths that are like this and pelvis width that's like this. And but these are like people that are alive right now and yeah, but just exactly. may look different. Okay. That's so cool. Yeah, exactly. And so that got me really interested then in human sexual dimorphism because I would have these huge data sets with, you know, really short people to really tall people, people with really long legs relative to their stature, people really short legs relative to their stature. And and then of course people with relatively wider you know, wider hips in the that sort of medial lateral direction, um, people with really narrow pelvis in that direction. And um, and just I started seeing patterns emerge from from um, patterns in their energetics, pat- a few patterns in their kinematics. And then when I started when I started perturbing them, so I was giving people not just walking tasks, but walking and running, or walking while carrying something, or walking when going uphill, or walking uphill with a backpack, or any of these sort of different options. 
I noticed that people didn't react to those tasks in the same way. Right. What do you think were some of the, maybe the most surprising differences that you found between, I don't know, like maybe between like measurements and function or maybe like just what are some of the interesting things you came across studying that? Well, honestly, I totally knew that I would find out that women were amazing walkers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not everyone might know, like have intuitively know why that is. Could you like explain why you... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I knew it was going to be that way. I mean, for a couple of different reasons, but from an anthropological perspective, women always walk. And when you take like when you take your first introduction to anthropology class, you know, in, in undergrad or something like that, and you learn that there are virtually no human universals, human culture is super diverse and people do different things all over. And you sort of have this like really teeny tiny list that it's, and even then there's always an N of one. There's always one culture that breaks every single rule. So there's no cannibalism except where there is. You don't marry your brother except where you do. I mean, there's always, seriously, there's always an exception except in this. There is no exception to the rule that women walk while carrying. Everybody does it everywhere in the world. And if you have something that is a universal and you have it particularly on the individuals, you know, for whom sort of the reproductive buck stops, right? If you don't have women able to do that task well, then your population goes extinct. And if that happens in enough populations, then your species goes extinct. And so I knew that women had to be good load carriers because they always do that. And so then the question becomes, why are they such good load carriers? And it looked like there were a lot of interacting pieces. Like there's something to say about the fact that in every sort of human cultural group, women tend to be a little smaller than men, somewhere between 7 and 12% smaller. And in every human cultural group, women have relatively wider hips And in many groups, women walk with other women and with children. And additionally, they tend to vary their speed. So they don't go out and back, they meander. And so all of these things, so then my question becomes, how do all of these things interact? And so in all of these different studies and all these different measures, what I found over and over again is that for a given mass, if you have a wider pelvis, then you used less energy to do a task and even less energy to do a, a carrying task. And I'm assuming that your listeners do have a sense of the optimal walking curve. Sure. Do you guys talk about that a lot? Yeah. So this idea that when you're talking about cost of transport, cost to go a given distance, the relationship between speed and the cost of transport, that cost sort of joules per meter, that relationship is curvilinear. So there's a speed at which you can walk your given distance and use the smallest amount of energy. And the base of that curve sort of the minimum. The curvature itself can be either quite acute. So there's like one speed that you can go or else any, anything away from that and you're going to have a pretty steep increase in cost or you could have a really broad base. And so that means that you have sort of anywhere from let's just say sort of uh, 1.7 or let's, I guess, sort of anywhere from like 1.3 to 1.7 meters per second. And anywhere in that you're basically using the same amount of energy 
And that's right. minimal, right? Yeah, that's minimal, right? So you're not, you don't really have a penalty for not walking at your exact optimum speed. And what I found is that for people who have this relatively wider pelvis width, they have that. They always have this very broad base to the cost of transport curve, which really allows them to walk with more people and to have more options for walking than people who have a more acute. And then I see that play out so that I see them again choosing when I do behavioral studies, they choose they choose a larger variety of speeds at which to walk. So that was that actually was surprising. My sense was that women were going to be more economical and I had some hypotheses about them being slightly more efficient, but this idea that because of their these differences in shape, we were also going to get increased flexibility. That was pretty exciting, and I was not expecting that. Oh, that is interesting. And so I guess there's there are two things that I kind of had a question about. The first was like when you say walk with, like it allows women to walk with different people. Do you mean like children or like elderly that like have slower, maybe like slower speeds? And so they're able to kind of traverse that a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. You know, when we create these, when I create these pictures, it's often based on snapshots that people have created by looking at what people do around the world. And it can definitely be that sort of three generation. So uh, groups will often have, walking groups will often have an older person, um, a sort of a reproductive aged person and, you know, a cohort of children, you absolutely see that pretty widespread in the world. You also see women walking with women who are pregnant and their gait is slightly different. So you can see just different, that sort of, those sorts of groups. And then of course, I mean, I have a student right now working on a project looking at men and women walking together. And there are definitely there are definitely also places where foraging groups can be slightly more similar to what we would think of as a nuclear, as like a nuclear family where you have a male, sort of male-female partners walking either by themselves or with children. And so you can, you know, the groups can be multi- with multiple genders as well. And so, yeah, but anytime, anytime you see that, the men are uh, the men are always taking an energetic penalty if they want to walk at the speed that the rest of their group is walking at whereas the women just don't really have an energetic penalty for walking with people who might have different who might be different ages carrying different loads just have different conditions that's really interesting and the other thing that you mentioned was women always being smaller and but I was wondering if you could uh, on average on yeah. average on average smaller. Yeah. I was wondering if you could just maybe talk about how that affects metabolic costs when walking. Yeah, absolutely. So being absolutely smaller means that women use absolutely less energy to do any task. What I think often happens when we talk about this in a in our sort of when we're setting up an experimental design is that that means that you give the women an potentially a relatively smaller task then because y- you know you might give you know if you're interested in load carrying that you might say well I'm going to give you 10% of your mass to carry 
And so then when it, when it sort of, when the results come out, people are like, well, of course women are using less energy because we gave them a, a less, a less challenging task. So therefore no one is really surprised. So when I've, I've done those studies, of course, just to see what that looks like. But I, I think that it's also important to remember that when you're out and about in this in this perspective that we care about how evolution works, when we're out and about, sometimes you just have to carry the load. You know, it doesn't really matter how big you are. You have to get whatever it is. You have to get your kid home. You can't just say, I'm only going to carry 12 of your pounds, child, because <laughs> you have the whole kid to carry. And so I, I think what's important is that because of some of these other things, because of sort of the lower center of mass, the rel- that the relatively wider pelvis gets you, as well as the slightly smaller stature, because women do seem to tend to take uh, longer strides when they're carrying loads because they, they get more length out of pelvic rotation, it ends up that women actually, even if you gave them the same exact task, so it's a proportionately more difficult task for women, they end up using less energy to do that task. And so that's, I think, where kind of, again, some of the more exciting findings unfold is when you realize that you're giving them a a relatively more challenging task, and they're actually still doing both absolutely or relatively better than the the larger larger people. Mm -hmm. So... I think that that's I, – I, I just think that it's really interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting because it's almost – and you really have to be sort of of this mind in a biomechanist to sort of appreciate these mm-hmm. I think, relationships because I feel like yeah. generally speaking, like um, we s- don't necessarily see smaller people as like more powerful, but yet – or you know, like we don't think of them in these terms, like our metrics are not in these sort of efficient terms, but more in like, oh, how strong are they or how? Exactly. But I'm assuming that you have been reading some of these cool things coming out about the endurance, the women who are winning the endurance marathons and races. No, I, yeah. um, Please tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I do think, I think that there are some pretty amazing things coming out. I, I think that you're I think you're right in getting at the what are our metrics is probably the most important question for how we're going to frame some of these issues. So if our metric is uh, who is going to be the the uh, you know the fastest right. for a hundred meters right. or who has the largest, you know, who has the most, you know, type one fibers per blah, blah, blah of their whatever, then that's, that is a question worth asking. I just, I'm, I think that I've been trying to argue that it's not the only question because it's not the only thing that's important to being a species that survives. And what we recognize about what women, how women have been able to manage, you know, all of the different tasks that they do is that they are more efficient. And what seems to be true as well is that they have more endurance. And so there's been some pretty interesting, so far just anecdotal, but I think really promising reports of women winning endurance activities and particularly reproductive aged women. So women who are finishing up lactation win these hundred mile races. Um, Yeah. 
who cross over. I'll have I can send you some of them. Yeah, um, because they're pretty, they're pretty incredible, and I it that is what I would have hypothesized. So I'm I'm happy that these results are coming out now. Basically, that more women are interested in doing these kinds of tasks. So we have a larger pool of women who are competing, and as women are more interested in doing these endurance endurance races, they are now they're winning. And I, I think that that is really important for us to understand sort of how women um, mobilize, you know, mobilize their energy and then use it for long periods of time. Yeah, it's almost like culturally we had to come back to this place where we re- reward those types of characteristics, right? Like for so long, we've rewarded men who can run fast and throw large objects. And like, if you think of our sports, Mm -hmm. but now, yeah, like you're saying, I'm so glad that we're coming back to highlighting these strengths that really we've adapted to or evolved to, to survive, but now can be highlighted in this culturally relevant like arena. Yeah, and actually, um, NPR right now is doing this interesting series on menopause, <laughs> and this is this is, I think, another place where it's become more culturally interesting to look at women because I'm interested in thermoregulation, and there's a whole bunch of thermoregulatory shifts that happen in for postmenopausal women. I've been looking really carefully at how women's ability to perform sort of athletic feats postmenopausal, what that looks like. Because again, cross-culturally, it's often older women who are not actively reproducing, who carry the heaviest loads, heavier even than sort of the, the youthful men. And it does seem that when you look at the data for postmenopausal women doing ultras, that they actually are not outperforming the men absolutely yet in the sort of like number of hours it takes to finish, but they don't, their speeds don't, their speeds don't decrease as rapidly as they age, as male speeds decrease with age. And I think that, again, partly because of being, you know, smaller and partly because once you're postmenopausal, you can allow your body temperature to increase pretty high because you're not sort of worried about protecting your ovaries anymore, that they're freed from this thermoregulatory constraint. They have a really high surface area to volume ratio. You know, they've been working their whole lives. And so we, I see them actually out competing even their earlier, their sort of younger selves. Wow. And it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty incredible. So I mean, just in sort of this cultural relevancy, what are the questions that we're asking from an evolutionary perspective, that idea of how quickly does somatic tissue atrophy? How quick, I know, how long can we maintain the ability to walk 20 kilometers? You know, these are some of the things that matter from a survivorship perspective. And we see women and older women really much more able to do this than men. And I think that that's, I think that that's a really important part of our, of the big picture of, of what it means to, to be a person and to study things like locomotion. Yeah, I agree because I, and I think maybe from the other perspective too, is like, not only it was like, okay, we know that women can do this. So like, should we maybe be doing exercise or activities that are closer match to that sort of performance. But it's been super interesting to just learn about how being an anthropologist changes your 
it kind of brings a different perspective to biomechanics. Um, and further, like the differences between men and women is important to capture and understand why it might be that way. As we were talking about the metabolic cost curves and how most of those have been men, like historically, it's just great to see research really looking into some of these differences and the importance of them. So I'm already blown away <laughs> by <laughs> what we've been able to talk about, but I kind of want to switch gears a little bit because as we were kind of looking at some Stalking of your research you. and you know, <laughs> trying to find your face, no, I'm just kidding. Um, we, we did come across a series of lectures and videos that you have been active in as far as faith regarding the, a faith and science dialogue. So we were, yeah, we're really curious. We actually haven't really approached this topic on Boom, but I think it, you'd be a great person to start the conversation with and just wondering a little bit about sort of the, the club, I believe, that you have that is the faith and science club on campus. Yeah. Yeah. And so just telling us a little bit more about that, how you got involved, maybe some of the, the motivations and goals for the events that you've put on. Yeah, definitely. I think that, there, so I think that there are two pieces of it. I think that the larger piece, the more important piece for me is that I don't ever want someone to think that science is not for them that science doesn't have anything to teach them or to help them or that the scientific method is not a wonderful way of understanding the world. And I definitely have had students who have been taught that if they want to study science, they have to abandon their family, their childhood, something about how they were raised. And I just don't want people to feel like if they have religious beliefs that science is not for them. And so that was really the purpose of the Faith in Science Club. It was to give students a chance to come and ask questions and talk about sort of where they have come from, talk about what people have told them they can or can't believe, and then just giving them a chance well, to hear some to hear some different options, like that there are sort of people who believe all sorts of things, and there's a and there's a place for them. There's a place for them in science, and then of course, depend. I mean, depending on their background and what they've been told, there are certain positions, certain um, theological positions that are definitely going to make it more difficult for them. And so then it just becomes whether or not they feel like they're in this particular situation, if their belief in the Christian God, if that belief rests entirely on the fact that, that the creation of the world had to have happened in six days, and for them, that is the most important thing about God is that God actually created the earth in six days, then yeah, probably science is not for them. But if they have some flexibility there, and it's more important that they see God as a creative force, or that uh, that God could have acted in creation over a longer period of time, or that what's most important to them is just that God loves them. Then you know, then we can start we can start a conversation because that God loving you is totally in line with being able to do science. Those are some of the those are some of the the issues that I think are important. And what what does concern me is when people tell me that they were told in an intro to biology class or an intro to biological anthropology 
they were told that if they are a Christian, then they're stupid and science is not for them. I, th- I think that that's wrongheaded because then you lose, you lose the students and they can't learn anything from you. And so I, I think creating that space where you want people to feel like learning is for them and you're willing to be open and talk with them, I think that that as, as educators, and of course, particularly now, we want in sort of our current cultural climate, we want people to feel like dialogue is a good and safe place to be. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I re- really appreciate you sharing that with us because I think that is a topic that tends to kind of be um, overlooked or just like not people aren't as comfortable talking about it. Mm-hmm. So, or it's just on the side yeah. of like what you're doing. It's not, but like really directly addressing that head on, I think is yeah. where we all should be. Yeah. Well, I think that in order for people to learn, they have to believe that you care about them. And I feel like caring about a person means that you you don't just care about their biology, about their brain, but you care about how they grew up and what kinds of things they talk about with their parents. I mean, when I teach in the autumn, I regularly give my students like a, a Christmas list for their parents. And like all my favorite books that are parent-ready and um, get their parents kind of excited about the things that they're learning about. Just because I, I think that if you, can't, if you can't have a sort of a dinner conversation with your parents about what you're learning, then it's going to be even more difficult for you to translate your science for the public. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, it's been really interesting because I feel like I've struggled with that in biomechanics. And now I'm taking on a more of like a psychology approach and has been so much, it's been so much easier to talk about that with people that I almost just like tend to go first towards that (laughs) because it's, I don't know, it's just more relatable. And then I've even had like people, you know, refer books to me that are on the topic and, and it's just, but I think it takes, you know, it's important though, to be able to Communicate. um, communicate all topics. So yeah, that really resonated with me. Yeah. And we're both TAing right now. So that would be a really cool thing to incorporate in our biomechanics class as well. Like I've never thought about that providing, Mm -hmm. providing a tool like that, I think is great. All right. Um, so wrapping up with our last couple questions, we are hoping that you might be able to share with us a research fail that you have faced in <laughs> your career. We love talking about failure. And um. <laughs> well, you know, it's all about attitude. That's my. I was thinking about this, and I was like, I feel like every super failure has just helped the next design be better. And so, but I will say that when I. When I started transitioning from lab, from collecting all my data in the lab to collecting data outside, well, it taught me a lot. And in a way, I, but it's probably the only data set that I've actually completely thrown away because uh, people, and this just goes back to this sort of idea of optimality, it's very difficult to get people to run outside of their sort of preferred running speed when you're not forcing them to do it on a treadmill. So I had people running around a track and I gave them these instructions, you know, sort of you're, you're running, 
you know, sort of at the walk run transition where you'd rather be walking, but I'm forcing you to run, or you're running at this comfortable, you're running with a friend, you're doing kind of the pace that you would want to do in a run, and then you're running basically all out. And so I gave people these instructions and then I told them to run around a track. And <laughs> basically, after about two to 400 meters, so after basically the first lap, everyone basically converged on the same speed. (laughs) (laughs) I just could not get them to run any differently than that, just that preferred running speed. It was pretty much impossible. Wow. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah, it, it it was something. It was something. <laughs> it sure was. Something. Have you found ways to you know help with that in the in studies after that? Whether like it's like with different instructions or just yelling at like them the whole time. <laughs> well, you're you're you yeah you can't you can't yell at that. What we have done. <laughs> We're just kidding. We don't, don't support yeah, that. Well. Well, it's mostly that it has to be repeatable for every person, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we ha- what we have done that we found it had this really has not worked that well for running. It works extremely well for walking. For running, if I need to collect data on the optimal running speed, I still just do it in the lab. Um because getting the upwards curve of the optimal walking speed is just really difficult. And you're pushing people just to that sort of anaerobic limit. And so I do tend to do those studies in in lab now. And then I do more about like behavior and preferred running and I do those sorts of things. Um, I do that part outside of the lab. But what I will say that we have done is that we've recorded our instructions. And so we say it without the participant in front of it. We record our instructions in sort of a calm, soothing voice. And then we play it for them, you know, sort of every time they pass us. Oh. And then Here's the exact same thing, and they hear it at the exact same time. And uh, in that way, we remind them of what they're supposed to be doing, but it's controlled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is no, you know, you can accidentally be impatient. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you you basically have to, I mean, depending on what you're testing, you could potentially have to throw out that entire that entire day then because that, that participant has just not experienced the same thing. And energetics and heart rate are really, they change really fast. And so just making sure that your participants are always, are always relaxed is just really important. So yeah, I mean, I've come up with, I think I've come up with some good ways of it being repeatable and... Um, making sure that people feel comfortable in regardless of whether you're in or out of the lab. Wow. Uh, yeah. And that's great. And an important part of all human resource research, right. Is um, taking care of your subjects. So um, thank you for that. And thank you for sharing that <laughs> experience. <laughs> well, we loved it. Um, so our last question and um, how we like to usually send, send off, uh, leave the interview is, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? Oh, wow. Well, I continue to be really excited, actually, about the, the use of virtual reality in tricking people's brain. And so seeing what 
seeing sort of the, both the connection and the disconnection bef- uh, between what the brain thinks is happening and then what how the legs are responding to that. I think that Jessica Selinger's uh, work on how the body, like what what tools the body is using in order to assess what energetic optimality actually is. I just, I think those are so fantastic. And I really can't wait to see what else is going to come out just so we have a better sense of what variables the body is using in real time in order to understand how to modulate speed. That's super exciting. Actually, no one, that is a unique answer. No one has said that in all of our 27 episodes so far. (laughs) I'm so glad. (laughs) So thank you for introducing us. Yeah, to so many new ideas and concepts. New ideas to us, I should say. Probably not, (laughs) maybe not new to everyone. Yeah, we, (laughs) I've learned so much talking with you. So we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. If um, people, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say thank you. I've had a really nice time talking to the two of you. Yeah. And and like Hannah was going to say, if people want to follow your work or where are you available? Do you have a Twitter or um, how to? Okay. Yeah. Twitter is just at wall shuffler. So yeah, W-A-L-L-S-C-H-E-F-F-L-E-R. And then I have a WordPress site. Oh, awesome. And that, yeah, so that's wallshuffler.wordpress.com. And I post articles and media and things like that on my on the WordPress site. So, but people can always email as well. I really like, I just really like ideas. And so I enjoy hearing what people are thinking and sort of how they're trying to design their studies in order to get at their question. I just think that's so important. Definitely. Well, I think that uh, your research and and how you were talking about it today will definitely generate some ideas and um, interested people. So yeah, hopefully hopefully you get some boomers. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right, it's time for some research fails. Research fails. Yes, it does. I'll start us off with start us off with one that's it's not a super research fail, but I okay. came across it on Twitter from an account named Science Girl. Okay, so it's so not, that's science. Like, it's science, and we're science, and we're science. So <laughs> I feel like it's valid, and we make the rules, so we get to like decide. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, basically, this just blew my mind. Like, I saw this tweet and I was like, well, how did this happen? So, network coverage was disrupted by an acorn woodpecker, which is a three-ounce bird. So, pretty small. So, just a little bitty a bird. Little bird. How, could, how could that little could bitty bird cause so the whole much network? <laughs> well, it apparently stashed an estimated 300 pounds of acorns. How many acorns? How, how many acorns, how many acorns, is, acorns that? is that? Somebody quick, get us Somebody the stats quick. on how many acorns. How many it acorns is. is even in a pound? Like that's crazy. And there were three hundred pounds. All right, Melissa's googling. Here we go. <laughs> I hope there's a quora uh, form. How on many this. acorns is in a pound? Yeah. Is that? That's I don't a great think question. I think that's the question. Eighty <laughs> acorns. Okay, this just in, y'all. 
<laughs> There's 80 acorns in a pound. So let's do that math. 80 times, times 300. Is that like 24,000? 24,000 acorns? <laughs> All right. Wow. So wow, wow, wow. This little tiny bird put 24,000 <laughs> acorns in a wireless antenna in California, causing network coverage to be disrupted. And the picture with the tweet is them prying open the antenna and just... Yeah. These 24,000 acorns just Tens of thousands out. of acorns. <laughs> Factual. That poor bird, what's it going to live on? Yeah. It, it was really saving up for something big. It was not- I don't know. Maybe we should Maybe we should think about what this little bird is trying to tell us here. It was going to be the one ready yeah, for the apocalypse. Yeah, it was ready and now we're ruined. I don't know how long it takes to, like... Yeah, was that its whole I mean, life? It would take me probably a few years to collect twenty four thousand acorns. <laughs> like at least a PhD. That's Especially at least if you if you got to fly all the way up to stash it, you in know. The antenna. Yeah. How was it? I think it can only probably carry one acorn <laughs> at, a time. at a time. You figure, even if it could find an acorn a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do the math on that one. <laughs> <laughs> What's that rent song about seasons of love? I feel like that's what I always use for. The minutes. I don't know. But. 5,600 something minutes. Anyway. Minutes. 25,600 minutes. Okay. So, okay. Okay. Hope you have that song stuck in your head. Okay. I have a fail. Please tell (laughs) Um. So, speaking of women running. I was... We were speaking of woodpeckers, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, well, earlier in <laughs> earlier the episode... Earlier we were talking about women running. You're right. <laughs> Thanks. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Never mind. There's a lot of interesting biomechanics research on woodpeckers, actually. I was going to add True, that. True. About... Um, their, brains their brains don't... They don't get brain damage from... From all the vibrations yeah. of their heads. And we might have had that. We might have talked about that on an that, episode. Like, like when we had early. that like really long streak of only having animal, animal biomechanics, biomechanics and bird biomechanics. And bird biomechanics, <laughs> specifically. Okay. Sorry, Melissa. So... <laughs> okay. So I was flying... getting. Flying home, I was on my way to the airport to go home for the holidays, I think. And um, I got out of the Uber. I went to go check my bags in in the kiosk outside. And I went to pull my phone out to get my ticket. And I realized that I left my phone in the Uber. And that's, like, the all-time worst, right? Because I'm like, I can't call anyone to, like, tell them I lost my phone in the Uber. I'm supposed to be getting on a flight. Like, what am I going to do? So I look back and I just... I drop all my bags at the kiosk, and I just take off, and I'm just running. I run down Terminal 1. I run down Terminal 2. <laughs> run through Terminal 3. <laughs> and, like, as this Uber was literally about to, like, turn off onto the highway, I caught him. And I was just screaming and, like, <laughs> flailing my arms like a psychopath. And then I, open, I like, banged on the window, like, I left my phone. And then... And then I opened it, I got my phone, and then uh, next to that were my keys. So, <laughs> anyways, I got both of those and then ran back <laughs> down all the terminals back to the kiosk. And no one had taken your bags? Because, you know, they say, no. like, stray bags, I think report them. The men, the men that were working there, like, I, they saw me, like, try to reach for my phone, and then I think they saw, like, my <laughs> eyes get big and my mouth drop, and then just, like, me sprinting away. And I came back, and he's like, whoa, you're in good shape. And I was just like, wow. 
<laughs> That's not what it was. You're like, have you read all the articles about women endurance athletes? <laughs> but anyways, I, that was um, that was a it was a fail. But so there was a bit of a miracle in the story in that it ended up working out. I it was like. fine. I love so. that. I love that. Melissa is the queen of putting tiles on things so that she doesn't lose them and knows where they are. And I'm always impressed with how she is able to find them even when there's no tile. (laughs) (laughs) I mostly need tiles because I lose things all the time. Um, But she always finds them. No, that's not true. (laughs) I left my wallet on a plane two times. Two separate wallets. Oh, and there was a tile in the one wallet, though. And then I... Was that the one on Texas? Yeah, I flew out of, like, Virginia. And then I I lost my wallet on that flight. And then I watched my wallet go to, like, North Carolina. (laughs) Then I watched my wallet go to Texas. Like, all on my tile app. And I was just like... (laughs) I don't know. I think this is probably worse, like, just seeing it travel the country. No, it's great. It's, like, off on its own. But then on my way home from the holidays, I left my wallet on the plane again. And it, the mm-hmm. thing is, it's just like, it's annoying losing your license. You got to mm-hmm. go to the DMV, DMV and blah, blah, blah. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. So if anyone, like if you're in need of a wallet, don't even worry about becoming a thief. Just sit near Melissa. And, <laughs> and I will just enough. hand my wallet over to you. <laughs> She might just leave it on the seat. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to this month's episode of Boom. My name is Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And we'd like to thank all of our sponsors who support Boom and make mm-hmm. it happen, including the International Society of Biomechanics, as yes. well as Peter Washington, who makes all our amazing music and sounds you hear in the podcast. Yes. And Peter Washington just got engaged. So <gasps> right. congratulations, Congrats Peter. To Peter. Yay. And um, <laughs> he also just released a new track on SoundCloud. His, I think his um, name is Coding Coder. And it's a really fun one. I think it's called Hey Girl. It kind of has some yellow card realness vibes going on. Um, so I just wanted to give a shout out to that. Yes. Um, also, you can follow Biomechanics on Our Minds on Twitter at BiomechanicsOOM. And if you'd like to submit a research fail, an interesting article, someone that you would like to interview or you want to get involved um, with Boom, email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Yeah, we're still we're always looking for students who want to host their own episode on mm-hmm. um, our Student Voices series. Um, we actually just had a student reach out to us, and it seems like a really fun, um, interesting topic that he wants to discuss on the podcast. So that's exciting, and so I think that kind of opens the doors for other students to definitely do the same if there's something you're excited about and want to share with other people so we're (laughs) so we're (laughs) you ready i'm ready biomechanics Biomechanics off off our minds. minds